Good morning. morning. (sighs) Yeah, let's pray. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, uh, your kindness is amazing. Your greatness is unmatched. And we get to sing about it. And the words that we utter, the words that we, we utter from our hearts, God, sometimes they're, they're attached to sincerity. They're, sometimes they're attached to not just sincerity, but a, a moment of gladness and delight, this experience where out of just legitimate joy, we are just saying truth regarding you. And sometimes that is not the place these words come from. Um, sometimes, oftentimes, they come from a place of confusion and um, angst and anxiety. And they're, they're not just declarations we're making out of a heart of delight. They're the prayers we're requesting for you to be present. And that's what we sung. We, we sung, and I know both hearts were present. And so, God, I just pray that you, Father, would be kind to us by meeting us where we are. And we know that that's taken place through the praises of your name, the singing and the music and being surrounded with the echoes of your greatness and the voices of people. We, we know that that is taking place, that you have met us in song. But God, we are praying now that you would just meet us with your word in preaching. And that it would be you meeting us, not through anything I could do or, or say but you meeting us through the power of your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you, would you do a work that cannot be done apart from you? Please, a work in me to focus me, to lock me into this preaching moment and not the moments that are surrounding it or surrounding me. Do that work, oh God. Please, Holy Spirit. And to meet us powerfully through the unfolding of your word for your glory and our good. We ask all these things believing that you not only hear, but you respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in Colossians. Colossians is where we are going to be. We have been journeying uh, through the book of Colossians, uh, whereby we have said, man, we just want to sit in this, stew in this book uh, for the foreseeable future. Realistically, it's going to take us until November. And uh, just by way of reminder, the reason why we said we are going to just stew in this book was because it captures some simple yet stunning ideas regarding Jesus Christ and Christianity. That Colossians lays before us some stunning and simple ideas regarding Christ and Christianity and where we find ourselves in our current moment in time is at a crossroads where we need to recapture the simplicity and the stunning nature of who Jesus is and what he calls certain people to experience, to embody, and to express its Christianity. And we need to recapture the greatness of those 
beings. And to Christians specifically, let me talk to you for a moment, Christians, those who said, I've seen the greatness of Jesus. I believe in the greatness of Jesus. I have responded in faith. I am now saying, God, your way, not mine. So I'm going to fall behind you and whatever you say goes. And I'm going to trust you even when it's difficult. Christians, those people want to talk to you specifically. Not only do we need to recapture the greatness of Christ and the necessity of Christianity, we need to recalibrate. We need to align our lives around the themes we claim, about the one we claim. We need recalibration specifically because we have said over and over again that there has been a black eye on the church in mass over the last few years. And people have said, wait a second, if that is what it means to be Christian, if that is what it means to follow Jesus, thanks, but no thanks, I'm good. And there's been a progressive move specifically among minorities away from Jesus and away from the church. And that is due large in part to the ways that we've given a bad picture of who Jesus is and what it means to belong in this family and to live out an ethic that transforms lives individually and collectively transforming the world. So Christians specifically hear me, we need to recalibrate and then realign and act accordingly. And as we search the text, we search the scriptures, it was like, man, Colossians is just this, this co- collision of stunning, simple ideas, condensed greatness. Let's sit and stew in it for a while. And prayerfully, as we continue to sit, stew, and soak in this book, God would transform us individually. God would transform us collectively as a church. And then that transformation would leak out into every relationship we're attached to, to the communities that we're in, the culture at large, our city, our country, and the globe. Welcome to this journey. If you have been with us, that's why we're doing this. If you haven't been, that's why we're doing this. I want us all on the same page. Pastor Jesse said something to me in between uh, services. He's like, man, would you got like, he feels like there's a little weight on you. I was like, you know, and so Jesse's a shepherd, so he'll just come in, he'll just put his hand, and he's, you know, he has a big hand, so he put his hand on your shoulder. I'm like, are we good? You about to fight? And so, he stares, he stares dead into my soul, and I was just wrestling. I was like, man, you know what? I, I agree. And you know, as I was just sitting and processing and singing, you know what it is? So this wasn't in the first service, but let me just say, I was just reminded that nostalgia could be our greatest ally or our worst enemy. Like nostalgia could be your greatest ally or your worst enemy. You know nostalgia, when you look back at things, right? And you're like, oh, man, this is really good. Some of us look back at our childhood with fond memories. We're like, yeah, that's great. And some of us become a prisoner of those memories that we look back on, and we become those people like those old men, get off my lawn. Well, in my day, we X, Y, and Z. And nostalgia has just been hitting me when I just look at the pictures, I look at what's going, and I'm just like, man, I don't want it to be an enemy. I do not want the past 
to create a prison or dictate the future in a way that's unhelpful. There is life in front of us, regardless of our stories in the past. The present is here and the future is glorious if God is who he says he is. And as we wrestle with Colossians right now, it is going to push us in some uncomfortable ways, potentially, but it could push us towards greater experiences of life and greatness. We are at a pivot point. To this point in the story, what Paul has been doing, Paul has just been exalting who Jesus is. He has laid out this glorious picture of Christ. He has said, this is who he is. He is the image of the invisible God. We see God through him. You want to know what God is like? You want to know what God looks like? You look to Jesus, you see this stunning love. You see this power. You see this tenderness. You see this truthfulness. You see grace and truth. And so he's been laying out this exalted picture of Christ, the head of the body, the church. And he's been saying, stare at him. Behold him, see him, worship, be in awe. But now we're at a pivot point where now he is moving our attention away from Jesus particularly and moving our attention to God's people, the church, where he is going to say, wait a second, the greatness of Jesus is captured in the lives of these people, and these people are meant to embody and then express some things. So he's getting ready to pivot, draw attention to the church, and then call the church to action. That's where we are in the journey. And so consider the next few weeks a deep dive into a people where we're getting words that are specifically directed for a people who they are and what they're called to do. And man, after the next four weeks, July 11th, closing this little mini deep dive, would we be clear, abundantly clear on who it is God is calling the church to be, what he is calling them to embody and express that life would be experienced everywhere. I'm excited. Clearly, got a tie on and everything. It's going to be a great day. But as we journey through this passage that Jesse already read, I want to go in and lay out the flow of our time. We're going to explore what really is a beautiful contradiction. We're going to explore this pattern for a people. And then we're going to explore what it looks like to participate in that work well. All right? Now, as we explore those things, I'm going to make some pleas. I'm just going to tell you now, I'm going to, you know, 90s R&B please, like keep sweat please, like, you know, twist it over you. I'm going to beg you guys. I may get on my knees, I may not get on my knees. We'll see. All right? But as we're exploring those three things, we're going to make some pretty significant pleas and hopefully we can respond accordingly. There's much work to do. Um, So let's read it straight through and then take it bit by bit. Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 24, it reads like this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. Struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works in me, chapter 2, verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all of the riches of the full assurance of the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. There's a lot here. So much here almost choked on that water. So let me go ahead and take a moment in Jesus' name. I was like, did that go down too fast? It's because I was already getting ready to talk because I'm eager, clearly. Last cough. I'm good. Online. Don't rush. I'm good. All right. This entire section, again, is this pivot point where our attention is being drawn into the church. But not only is our attention being drawn to this people, Paul is drawing our attention to this purpose that he lays on this people. So this is verse 28. Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then you get to chapter 2, and it just starts to just expand on the nature of that maturity and the experience that's attached to maturing, that people will be falling greatly in love with who God is, that they would grab onto the riches of who he is, the depths of his knowledge, the depths of his wisdom, that they would mature. Paul lays that purpose on a people. He says every church everywhere has that written in their bones to move towards maturity. To move towards maturity. It's written in our bones. To grow a people from all people passionate for God. You can say it in cute ways. It doesn't matter. It is to move towards maturity. And so as Paul is laying out this picture of a people, and then he's now laying out this purpose that he's going to place on them, you align all of your activity to that end. He is also inviting us into his personal experience and expression of working towards that glorious goal ministry. And Paul's invitation to his personal engagement creates this beautiful contradiction that's worth pausing on, thinking through, exploring. This beautiful contradiction is captured in the first few words of verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Rejoicing in suffering. We should be alarmed by the frequency those two words are paired together in the scriptures. Rejoicing and suffering. 
Everyone everywhere has a theology around suffering. So theology is just thoughts or ideas that you may have that you bring all of those thoughts and ideas together and they become a framework or a paradigm. And this framework or this paradigm, this ology, what happens is it starts to shape your perspectives and it starts to shape your interactions and subsequent life choices, ology. Now everybody everywhere has that regarding suffering. Step on a crack and you break your mama's back, right? And so what, what we just did is like, oh, my mom has back issues, and we trace it back to some crack that I stepped on when I was five years old. Does that make sense? Like everyone everywhere has put salt. We all have that. Now, within our theology of suffering, when we try to make sense of broken things, pain in our lives, painful experiences other people may be having, there's also this theology that kind of feels or even looks like this. When life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Add some stevia, if that's your jam, to that bad boy, and you're good to go. Effervescence, right? And so what we do is essentially what we're saying is, like, even in the midst of difficulty and challenge and painful moments or painful experiences, we have to learn how to make the most out of a bad situation. Right? There's another part that almost even feels like this. It's the bright side mentality. Or it could have been worse. Man, you only lost a pinky. Imagine if you would have lost your middle finger too. This bright side mentality, this silver lining seeking, that kind of feels like this. Yeah, rejoice and suffering. Oh, that's make the most out of a bad situation. Ah, that's kind of look for the silver lining so that you can be okay in the moment. That is not what this is. Paul is exposing us to this radical paradigm that says, I will dance in my despair. I am going to grab hold of gladness a smile on my soul, regardless of the circumstances around me, that's qualitatively different. And it's a beautiful contradiction. It's a beautiful contradiction. What's interesting is what, what Paul is cluing us into is this radical new theology regarding suffering and life that is informed by the scriptures. And what the scriptures do when they look at broken situations is very interesting. They spend less time, less time, catch this, the scriptures spend less time trying to draw people's attention to the cause of suffering. And more time trying to draw people's attention to what they could do in the midst of suffering. So this is Jesus interacting with this man that was born blind, blind from birth. And people are asking questions, questions that we ask. They're not necessarily bad questions. They're questions that are tied to the human condition. And they're like, well, Jesus, we have this hard, horrible, difficult, challenging situation and circumstance. This man is born blind. He's not able to experience life to its fullest. It's a type of suffering. So clearly something is wrong. Jesus, who sinned? Who sinned that this man would experience this? Draw our attention to the cause. And what Jesus says is, that's not the point. 
The point isn't who sinned to bring us to this place and this circumstance. The point is what can God do in the middle of it? This exists that God would be glorified. God would be seen and from being seen, enjoyed. That's the theology that's informing Paul's view of suffering. It shows up in Romans where he looks at bad situations and he's like, oh, by the way, it sucks. It's difficult. It's trash. It's hard. It's frustrating. It angers me. Ah, but from the perspective of eternity, when I, when, I, when I grab God's eyeballs and I place them on this situation, light momentary affliction. It's informing this. And it's allowing him to say something that is a beautiful contradiction. I rejoice. There's another part of the story the scriptures tell regarding suffering. Stephen Colbert, he had this amazing interview with Anderson Cooper. And in the interview, he was talking about the brokenness of his story and the death that plagued him and the grief journey that he's been on. And he synthesized what writers in the scripture consistently say regarding suffering. Man, how do you navigate all of that? How do you navigate the pain and brokenness of his life? And he's like, God does it too. And when you search the scriptures, they are filled with sobriety, like sober realism, but stunning hope that coalesce in the statement regarding suffering. God does it too. This is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, there is this servant who is identified as a suffering servant And here's what's said about him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, even though he was carrying all of this pain, not for himself. We esteemed him stricken, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. His aches for our adoption. God does it too. The suffering servant that was talked about in Isaiah is embodied in Jesus. John eleven thirty five, 35, story of Lazarus, friend, really family. He dies. John eleven thirty five. 35, we see Jesus weeping, suffering. You know why? Because God does it too. John eleven thirty three, 33, same situation. Jesus felt the pain of loss because God does it too. Mark 14, 34, Jesus feels anxiety, which is an attribute of suffering. 
because God does it too. Luke 22:44. Jesus felt the stress of responsibility. You know how humbling and frustrating it is to feel completely responsible yet utterly powerless, i.e. parenting? The stress of responsibility is real, yes? Sweating blood, anguish, God does it too. Jesus enters into our human experience, which is a statement of God's care and comfort for us. God does it too. He suffers with and he suffers for, and then Jesus starts to experience what we can in suffering as well. Matthew 4, 11, Luke 22, 43, Jesus was able to feel the strengthening and the comfort of God the Father through the Holy Spirit. He was ministered to by angels. God met him in his prayers. And for us, God could do it too. Luke 24, 44 through 49, Jesus felt the joy of God being true to his word. He held on to that bad boy, not my will, but your will be done, regardless of whether your will will take me through this valley or will take me on this mountaintop. And this valley is a cross, but resurrection is coming because you're true to your word. And for us, we could experience that too. This beautiful contradiction provides a moment to breathe. Pain and suffering is part of the deal. If we're human, we will hurt. Um, plea time. This is the one I'm going to plea. First plea. So I got surgery. I kind of mentioned that earlier last week. And my surgeon, he, he was like, hey, Moochie, right now, there's a block on your leg. So he gave me the shot. I was like, you know, I don't really like shots. You know, getting the vaccine was hard, but I took it like a champ. You know what I'm saying? But like, like he gave me the shot like on my leg in two places. And he was like, hey, so I'm giving you what is called a block. If you're a medical student, you know, you know what that is. If you're in the medical profession. And so he blocked essentially the nerves in my leg. And he's like, hey, Moochie, I just want you to know, I'm giving you this block, but the block is going to wear off. And I was like, all right, <laughs> of course it's going to wear off. It's not going to last forever. He's like, no, 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 no. The block's going to wear off. And Diamond is over there taking notes. My husband is not listening to this man. Okay. And so I got home. It was about 3 a.m. The block wore off. I was like, oh, my God. And so I was trying to go to the bathroom, hobbling like this, excruciating pain. Felt no pain earlier. <laughs> A few hours later, the block wore off. What I have found is when pain hits us, we self-medicate. We create a block. So we don't have to experience the suffering anymore. The block wears off. And so the plea is to not choose fabricated peace or functional savior. This is what Jesse preached on last week. False gods that could promise the alleviation of pain in a moment, 
the experience of pleasure in the moment. But guys, listen to me. The block wears off. All right. This moment to breathe actually pushes us to this pattern. What has been stunning for me is not just this introduction to these rejoice-suffering combination, but it's what this rejoice and suffering is attached to. Read with me. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Verse one in chapter two, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Did we hear this? I am willing to experience this deep amount of suffering and pain and struggle and hardship and difficulty that's both tied to external circumstance and internal dynamics. I am experiencing it, but I'm experiencing it for you. Now, while the scriptures don't call us to like focus or lock in on the cause of suffering. They do, they do help us acknowledge that not all suffering is created equal and not all suffering comes from the same place. Some of us are experiencing hardship and difficulty currently because of past financial decisions. Some of us are experiencing hardship and difficulty currently because of past relationship decisions. Some of us are experiencing hardship and difficulty because we live in a fallen, broken world that is touched by misery and pain is everywhere. So it's no fault of anybody. It's the nature of being human. Some of us are experiencing difficulty and hardship because somebody else has sinned against us. So we are paying for somebody else's brokenness. What he is saying is, I'm experiencing hardship and difficulty by choice, by choice. I am willingly suffering for you. Now, notice how he describes the suffering that he's experiencing for the sake of another. This is 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul Paul doesn't like talking about himself. But whenever he talks about himself, he, he's going to say, man, I'm just going to talk about myself only so I can direct your attention back to God and God's greatness at work in me. Here's what he says, though, about himself and the way he has suffered for the sake of others. He says this in verse 24. He says, five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Who got beat growing up? You could raise your hand. Two hands for safety in Jesus' name, right? Like one lash is like, eesh. 39, 39, and I ain't do nothing wrong. Three times I was beaten with rods, not a switch, a rod. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. Man, I can't swim, guys. I'm going to learn this summer. Hold me to it. That terrifies me. To be just drifting in the ocean? In Jesus' name, Loch Ness Monster. Uh, On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. It didn't matter where I went. Suffering and difficulty had a way of finding me. 
danger from false brothers. My God. I experienced backstabbing like you can never imagine. That the people who said they would pray for me, the people who said they had my best interest in mind were liars. And they took a knife, they put it in my kidney, and they put it in my back while they were smiling in my face. Slander is still a sin. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the churches. Did you catch that? This is not just external stuff happening. He's saying there's this internal weight from all the churches that I helped to start or that I've heard of, I haven't seen them face to face, and yet they're on my heart and mind. There's faces, there's stories, there's situations, there's circumstances that other people are going through, and I am bearing that on my soul, and it's producing anxiety, a type of suffering. Who would do that willingly? People who have been wrecked by love. Because that's love. Love suffers for, and it suffers with. This is him wrecked by the love of God in his life. Seeing that, wait a second, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ. Jesus did it too for me. And it ravages me from the inside out. It's love. You know, this pattern, which is for all of us, this isn't for like the super apostles or the super Christians, those who got it all figured out. This is for everybody who names themselves Christian. This is all of us. This pattern produces a question. How far are we willing to be stretched for the sake of love? You know um, the story of my wife. She, um, she has a gluten allergy, so she's not allowed to have the finer foods in life, uh, yeah, um, and so it is what it is. We just kind of exist in that space in our family now, but because my wife is infinitely greater than most people, me in particular, um, she's like, you know what? Just because I have this gluten allergy, y'all don't all have to suffer. Thank you. Thank you, babe. All right, and so one day, no joke, <laughs> one day, one of my kids, who I won't name, um, they were like, at dinner time, they're like, Mom, you know what? You really can't partake in this pasta. <sighs> you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be gluten-free with you. I'm just going to do it. I'm going I'm to step into this gluten-free diet space. Diamond stared at this person. You know not what you say, and you know not what you do. All right? And they're like, no, 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 I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. All right? Cool. Didn't have that pasta that night. Next morning. Mom, let's have a conversation. You know how I said I wanted to do this situation? I kid you not. This is a re- this, this really happened. Ah, I don't think I could do it. And Diamond was like, it's okay. I told you you didn't know what you were doing and what you were committing to. I still love you. This cup will pass. Give it back. You're good to go. That person almost said who they were in Jesus' name. They lasted about mm, six and a half, eight hours 
They were willing to be stretched for about eight hours for the sake of love. I wonder if that's us. There's an expiration date on our willingness to be stretched for the sake of love. We have a timeline in our mind on our willingness to be stretched for the sake of love. And you know what accelerates that timeline? Other people's competence or worthiness. So if they could prove that they're worth the work, I'll continue. But if they can't, that goes from eight hours to two. Praise God, that's not the gospel. That that's not how God chooses to interact with us on a timeline in that fashion. To interact with us based on our competence or our worthiness. And then when we show them that we're incompetent and we're not really worthy, although people might say that we are, he doesn't stop stretching. How far are we willing to be stretched for the sake of love? Here's a second plea with you. Keep sweat like. Don't remove yourself from relationships you're called to remain in. Now, that's hard. Here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying don't remove yourself from abusive situations. There is no category for anybody anywhere using Christianity as the tool to tell people to remain in abusive situations. We don't see that. We see the opposite. We see a God of rescue who comes in and frees people from stuff like that. So I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is the line of leaving and staying is hard to discern. But that's why we need each other. And as we approach the line, we should be thoughtful to remain in relationships we're really called to endure for. That took a lot of time. His pattern isn't just this pursuit of love. His pattern is this ownership of ministry, and that also becomes a picture of how we participate in the work of ministry well. Read with me, and we'll start to move towards a close. Here's what he says. Verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Fully known. What he's doing is he's inviting us into his unique work that he's identifying as stewardship from God, i.e., grace, that God has uniquely gifted him for specific task. That is grace. A comprehensive understanding of the grace of God leads us to two conclusions, that God's grace is both unmerited favor and divine empowerment. It's both. It's the grace that frees us from the debt and invites us into relationship, into family, sons, daughter, Christian. It's the grace that not only invites us in, but sends us out as representatives to demonstrate powerful, world-altering love. Missionary. There's a stewardship of grace. This is how the scriptures talk 
all the time. This is Ephesians 3, 2. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each of us use them. You see that? He is saying, there is this unique grace on me to make the word of God fully known. That when I have the Torah in front of me, I am thinking through God, what are you saying? But I'm not just thinking through God, what are you saying? I'm thinking through people. So I'm like, God, what are you saying? And what are you saying to these people? How can I connect the dots for their life, for their good, their transformation? All of the dots fully known. So not just the easy parts, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. But the hard parts, where now we're starting to have to wrestle with the dynamics of eternity and hell and what is that mean? Is that a play? I am wrestling through all of this, making it fully known for their sake. It's an example of using the grace of God that's in your life for the sake of another. We know this to be true. Notice the way he talks. Notice the pronouns that he uses. First person singular. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. But when you get to the purpose that is laid on all people, it's we. Him we proclaim. That we may present everyone mature. So all I'm doing is I'm just showing what I, my part of this thing. But we have a collective part to produce maturity. God has graced you for good. In other words, if we want to participate well, we have to learn to interrogate our stories. To learn to interrogate your story is to participate well in the work God has for us. As we interrogate our story, we ask questions. We ask questions. What, what is breaking and energizing, breaking or energizing my heart? Because it is in pain and passion that I find grace often in the pain, the problems that I'm seeing that are frustrating me. God is like, you are a potential solution to that. It's pain, it's passion, what's breaking or energizing your heart. What has been affirmed by honest, thoughtful, multiple voices? If seven people have not told you you could sing, my brother, my sister, that is not God's grace in your life. I'm just honest, thoughtful, multiple voices. Where is the intersection of need and availability? Where there's this clear presented need and you actually have availability to do something about it. That's where God's grace wants to meet you, wants to meet me. That's what it looks like to participate well, interrogating our story, asking these hard questions, and then acting accordingly. Plea number three. I used to make music feel like every minority pastor made music at some point in time in their life. Let me just say that out loud. And so, true, there's some type of spoken word or some type of... But I made music in high school. From Houston, Texas, born and raised. And there was this specific style of music in high school um, that I was so in love with called Chopped and Screwed. Tracy, do we have that queued up? 
And I just want to, because sometimes you got to like experience it or see it, because I say chopped and screwed, and only Ronnie knows what I'm talking about. And so I, like, yeah, you just, just. Hey, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know what I'm saying? Go ahead, girl. I see you. If you're online, you just see what I'm saying. You can stop it. Bow. Because you know, you keep going. And it's like, oh my God. In Jesus' name. Draped up and dripped. No, no, what I'm talking about. So I used to chop and screw music. That, that was the thing that I did. Lunatons Incorporated was a whole situation. I used to sell mixed CDs. I was a hustler. Pray, hustle, repeat. Right? Now, no joke. Somebody came up to me. And was like, I got this mix CD I want to sell you. And I was like, cool. Like, I want to grow my craft. I like music. He played it. That was back when we had those Sony Walkmans. And, then, and so I'm listening to it. I'm like, yo, this go hard. And I had a distinct style of how I chopped and screwed my music. I would like hit the, like, so I, and so like, I'm listening. And I'm like, this sounds so familiar. And I'm like, my brother, this is my CD. Yo, I was so mad. He was like, oh, oh, you, you did that? <laughs> awkward moment. <laughs> yeah, it was so awkward. But I had a conversation with him. It was a good conversation. There was no, no blows. Um, and as we were talking, it was just interesting because he was just like, yeah, honestly, it was just a lot easier to just copy and paste this than do it myself. Yeah, I can see that. It is so easy to copy and paste somebody else's story, guys. To copy and paste somebody else's gifting. To pretend to be something that you are not because it looks appealing. Because you know it will be received. The plea, don't be an imitation of somebody else's life. Don't choose somebody else's story when there's grace in your life. Discover it. Give yourself over to the discovery of the grace of God in your life. And once you discover, do. The maturity of other people is attached to it. This is what Paul lays in front of us and the experience if we choose to fight is glorious, it's good. Marked with reality, but directed towards beauty. Let's choose well, pray with me. Father, um, I am so grateful that your love is more powerful than our shame. I'm so grateful that your love is strong enough to affirm and acknowledge difficulty and our humanity and the brokenness that's in us and surrounds us. Your love doesn't have to lie or pretend your love is fierce. I'm so grateful that your love 
shows up as you suffering for and suffering with for our sake. All of these are examples. But they're more than examples. They're, they're experiences we get to, to have to fall more deeply into the ocean of your love and to live from that space. So as we move into this next moment, would these words still rest on us, God? And we'll be transformed because you're good. In your name we pray, Jesus, amen.